Welcome back to Into the Book. This is I Hate You Don't Leave Me, Chapter 3. Roots of the Borderline Syndrome All happy families resemble one another. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own fashion. From Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Growing up was not easy for Dixie Anderson. Her father was rarely at home, and when he was, he didn't say much. For years, she didn't even know what he did for a living, just that he was gone all the time. Margaret, Dixie's mother, called him a workaholic. Throughout her childhood, Dixie sensed that her mother was hiding something, though Dixie was never quite sure what it was. But when Dixie turned 11, things changed. She was an early developer, as her mother put it, though Dixie really wasn't sure what that meant. All she knew was that her father was suddenly home more than he had ever been, and he was also more attentive. Dixie enjoyed the new attention and the new feeling of power she had over him when he was finished touching her. After he was done, he would do whatever she asked of him. About this same time, Dixie suddenly became more popular in the family's affluent suburban Chicago neighborhood. The kids began to offer her their secret stashes of pot and, a few years later, mushrooms and ecstasy. Middle school was a drag. Halfway through a school day, she'd wind up fighting with some of the other kids, which did not rattle her at all. She was tough. She had friends and drugs. She was cool. Once she even punched her science teacher, whom she felt was a real jerk. He didn't take it well and went to the principal, who expelled her. At age 13, she saw her first psychiatrist, who diagnosed her as hyperactive and treated her with several medications that didn't make her feel anywhere near as good as weed. She decided to run away. She packed an overnight bag, took a bus to the interstate, stuck out her thumb, and in a few minutes was on her way to Las Vegas. The way Margaret saw it, no matter what she did, it always seemed to turn out the same with Dixie. Her older daughter could not be pleased. Dixie had obviously inherited her dad's genes, always criticizing the way Margaret looked and the way she kept the house. Margaret had tried everything to lose weight. Amphetamines, booze, even gastric stapling, yet nothing seemed to work. She'd always been fat. She often wondered why Roger had married her. He was a handsome man from the beginning. She could not understand why he wanted her. After a while, it was obvious he didn't want her. He simply stopped coming home at night. Dixie was just one bright spot in Margaret's life. Her younger daughter, Julie, was already obese at age five and seemed a lost cause. But Margaret would do anything for Dixie. She clung to her daughter like a lifeline. But the more Margaret clung, the more Dixie resented it. She became more demanding, throwing tantrums and screaming about her mother's weight. The doctor could do nothing to help Margaret. They said she was manic depressive and addicted to alcohol and amphetamines. The last time Margaret was in the hospital, they gave her electroshock treatment. And now with Roger gone and Dixie always running away, the world was closing in. After a few frantic months in Vegas, Dixie took off for Los Angeles, which was the same story as Vegas. She was promised cars and money and good times. Well, she had ridden in a lot of cars, but the good times were few and far between. Her friends were losers, and sometimes she had to sleep with a guy to borrow a few bucks. Finally, with nothing but a few dollars in her jeans, she went back home. Dixie arrived to find Roger gone and her mother in a thick fog of depression and drug-induced numbness. With all this bleakness at home, Dixie soon fell back into her alcohol and drug habits. At 15, she had been hospitalized twice for chemical abuse and was treated by a number of therapists. 
At 16, she became pregnant by a man she had met only a few weeks before. She married him soon after the pregnancy test. Seven months later, when Kim was born, the marriage began to fall apart. Dixie's husband was a weak, passive oaf who could not get his own life together, much less provide a solid home environment for their child. By the time the baby was six months old, the marriage was over, and Dixie and Kim moved in with Margaret. It was then that Dixie became obsessed with her weight. She would go entire days without eating, and then eat frantically and voluminously, only to vomit it all up in the toilet. What she couldn't get rid of by vomiting, she eliminated in other ways. She ate squares of X-lax as if they were candy. She exercised until sweat drenched her clothes, and she was too exhausted to move. The pounds dropped off, but her health suffered, and her mood worsened. Her period stopped, her energy waned, her capacity to concentrate weakened. She became very depressed about her life, and for the first time, suicide seemed like a real alternative. Initially, she felt safe and comfortable when she was readmitted to the hospital, but soon her old self returned. By the fourth day, she was trying to seduce her doctor. When he didn't respond, she threatened him with all sorts of retaliation. She demanded extra privileges and special attention from the nurses and refused to participate in unit activities. As abruptly as she had gone into the hospital, she pronounced herself cured and demanded discharge. Just days after admission, over the next year, she would be readmitted to the hospital several times. She would also see several psychotherapists, none of whom seemed to understand or know how to treat her dramatic mood shifts, her depression, her loneliness, her impulsiveness with men and drugs. She began to doubt that she could ever be happy. It wasn't long before Margaret and Dixie were fighting again and screaming at each other. For Margaret, it was like seeing herself growing up all over again and making the same mistakes. She couldn't bear to watch it any longer. Margaret's father had been just like Roger, a lonely, unhappy man who had little to do with his family. Her mother ran the family much like Margaret ran hers. And just as Margaret clung to Dixie, so had her mother clung to Margaret, trying desperately to mold her every step of the way. Margaret was fed her mother's ideas and feelings and enough food for a battalion. By the age of 16, she was grossly obese and taking large amounts of amphetamines prescribed by her family doctor to suppress her appetite. By the age of 20, she was drinking alcohol and taking Fiorinol to bring her down from the amphetamines. Margaret was never able to please her mother, even as the constant struggle for control between them raged on. Nor could Margaret please her own daughter or husband. She had never been able to make anyone happy, she realized, not even herself. Yet she persisted in trying to please these people who would not be pleased. Now with Roger gone and Dixie so sick, Margaret's life seemed to be falling apart. Dixie finally told her mother how Roger had sexually abused her, and before Roger left, he had bragged all about his women. Despite everything, Margaret still missed him. He was alone, she knew, just like she was. It was time, Dixie recognized, to do something about the plight of this self-destructive family, or at least herself anyway. A job would be her first priority, something to combat the relentless boredom that she was 19 years old with a two-year-old child and no husband, and she still hadn't graduated from high school. With characteristic compulsiveness, she flung herself into a high school equivalency program and received her diploma in a matter of months. Within days of obtaining her diploma, she was applying for loans and grants to attend college. Margaret had begun to take care of Kim, and in many ways the arrangement looked like it might work. Raising Kim gave Margaret some meaning in her life. Kim had built-in childcare, and Dixie had time for her new mission in life. 
but soon the system showed cracks. Sometimes Margaret got too drunk or depressed to be of any help. When this happened, Dixie had a simple solution. She would threaten to take Kim away from Margaret, but the grandmother and the granddaughter obviously needed each other desperately, so Dixie was able to totally control the household. Through it all, Dixie still managed to find some time for men, though her frequent liaisons were usually of short duration. She seemed to follow a pattern. Whenever a man started to care for her, she became bored. Distant, older men, unavailable doctors, married acquaintances, professors, were her usual type. She would drop them the instant they responded to her flirtations. The young men she did date were all members of a church that was strictly opposed to premarital sex. Dixie avoided women and had no female friends. She thought women were weak and uninteresting. Men at least had some substance. They were fools if they responded to her flirtation and hypocrites if they did not. As time went on, the more Dixie succeeded in her studies, the more frightened she became. She could pursue a particular interest school, a certain man, relentlessly, almost obsessively, but each success spurred even higher and more unrealistic demands. Despite good grades, she would explode in rage and threaten to kill herself when she performed below her expectations on an exam. At times like these, her mother would try to console her, but Margaret was also becoming preoccupied with suicide, and the roles were often reversed. Mother and daughter were again shuffling in and out of the hospital, trying to overcome depression and chemical abuse. Like her mother and her grandmother, Kim didn't know her father very well. Sometimes he came to visit. Sometimes she went to the house that he shared with his mother. He always seemed awkward around her. With her mother detached and her grandmother ineffectual or preoccupied with her own problems, Kim had taken control of the household by the time she was four. She ignored Dixie, who responded by ignoring her. If Kim threw a tantrum, Margaret would cave in to her wishes. The household was in an almost constant state of chaos. Sometimes both Margaret and Dixie would be in the hospital at the same time. Margaret for her drinking, Dixie for her bulimia. Kim would then go to her father's house, although he was unable to care for her and would have his own mother tend to her. On the surface, Kim seemed oddly mature for a six-year-old despite the chaos around her. To her, other kids were just kids without her experience. She didn't think her particular type of maturity was unusual at all. She had seen old photographs of her mother and her grandmother when they were her age, and in the snapshots, they all had the same look. Across generations, in many respects, the Anderson saga is typical of borderline cases. The factors contributing to the borderline syndrome often transcend generations. The genealogy of BPD is often rife with deep and long-lasting problems, including suicide, incest, drug abuse, violence, losses, and loneliness. It has been observed that borderline people often have borderline mothers, who in turn have borderline mothers. This hereditary predisposition to BPD prompts a number of questions, such as, how do borderline traits develop? How are they passed down through families? Are they, indeed, passed down at all? In examining the roots of this illness, these questions resurrect the traditional, nature versus nurture, or temperament versus character quandary. The two major theories on the causes of BPD, one emphasizing developmental roots, the other constitutional origins, reflect the dilemma. Studies indicated that approximately 42 to 55 percent of BPD features are thought to be attributed to genetic influences, the rest derived from environmental experiences. 
In addition to interpersonal stressors and ordeals, environmental influences include sociocultural factors such as our fast-paced, fragmented societal structure, destruction of the nuclear family, increased divorce rates, increased reliance on non-parental daycare, greater geographical mobility, and changing patterns of gender roles. Though empirical research on these environmental elements is limited, some professionals speculate that these factors would tend to increase the prevalence of BPD, or even type of cause of BPD. Rather, genetic, developmental, neurobiological, and social factors all contribute to the development of the illness. Genetic and neurobiological roots, the nature aspects. Family studies suggest that first-degree relatives of borderline patients are several times more likely to show signs of a personality disorder, especially BPD, than the general public. These close family members are also significantly more likely to exhibit mood, impulse, and substance abuse disorders. In family studies focusing on components of the four major sectors that define BPD, a single genetic pathway accounted for convergence of these symptoms in family members. One study found that a family member of someone with BPD is almost four times more likely to develop BPD than a non-relative. Another study of twins examining all nine BPD criteria also included that the most genetic effects on BPD criteria derived from one heritable general BPD factor. In this research, impulsivity levels in BPD patients appeared to be more highly heritable. In contrast, interpersonal and self-image features were less connected among family members, suggesting these symptoms were more likely influenced by life experiences and were less genetically determined. Some have suggested that a sector on chromosome 9, which encompasses many genes, may be associated with BPD. It is unlikely that one single gene completely determines BPD. Instead, like most medical disorders, many chromosomal loci are involved, some activated or subdued, probably influenced by environmental factors, in the development of what we label BPD. Genes that are determined at birth can also be altered through a process known as epigenetics. Stress or trauma, such as PTSD, can result in DNA methylation a process that is far beyond the scope of this book. Suffice to say here that it is a mechanism that turns a gene on or off. Biological and anatomical correlations with BPD have been demonstrated. In our book, Sometimes I Act Crazy, we discuss in more detail how specific genes affect neurotransmitters. Dysfunction in some of these neurotransmitters, such as serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, glutamate, and others, are associated with impulsivity mood disorders, dissociation, and other characteristics of BPD. These neurotransmitters also affect the balance of glucose, adrenaline, and steroid production in the body. Oxytocin, sometimes dubbed the love hormone for its association with maternal bonding, increased socialization and decreased anxiety may be dysregulated by BPD. Studies have demonstrated paradoxical reactions to this neuropeptide in the BPD population. Disrupted secretion of cortisol, a key substance related to stress response through the endocrine system, is observed in BPD patients. Some of the genes affecting these neurobiological substances have been associated with several psychiatric illnesses. However, studies with variable results demonstrate that multiple genes contribute to the expression of most medical and psychiatric disorders. In BPD, Frequent abuse of food, alcohol, and other drugs, typically interpreted as self-destructive behavior, 
may also be seen as an attempt to self-medicate inner emotional turmoil. Borderline patients frequently report the calming effects of self-mutilation rather than feeling pain. They experience soothing relief or distraction from internal psychological pain. Self-mutilation, like any other physical trauma or stress, may result in the release of endorphins, the body's natural narcotic-like substances that provide relief during childbirth, physical traumas, long-distance running, and other physically stressful activities. BPD patients exhibit alterations in the body's endogenous opioid system that affects not only pain perception, but also soothing, pleasurable feelings. Changes in brain metabolism and morphology are also associated with BPD. Borderline patients express hyperactivity in the part of the brain associated with anger, fear, emotionality, and impulsivity, and decreased activity in the section that controls rational thought and regulation of emotions. In perhaps an oversimplified way, this suggests that in BPD, the evolutionarily more developed, reasoning, rational part of the brain is overwhelmed and unable to control the more primitive, instinctual, impulsive portion of the mental system. Additionally, volume changes in these parts of the brain are also associated with BPD and are correlated with these physiological changes. In response to external injury or internal stress, the immune system stimulates a cascade of biological interactions resulting in inflammation. This stimulates pro- and anti-inflammatory factors that can be measured in the blood. Inflammatory processes have been associated with several major psychiatric disorders, including major depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, PTSD, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and others. It would not be surprising if some of the features of BPD were associated with this kind of autoimmune dysfunction. These alterations in the brain may be related to brain injury or disease. A significant percentage of borderline patients have a history of brain trauma, encephalitis, epilepsy, learning disabilities, ADHD, and maternal pregnancy complications. These abnormalities are reflected in brainwave irregularities, metabolic dysfunction, and reductions in white and gray matter volume. Since the failure to achieve healthy parent-child attachment may result in later pathology, Cognitive impairment on the part of the child and slash or the parent may hinder the relationship. As the latest research strongly suggests that BPD is partially inherited, parent and child may both experience dysfunction in cognitive and slash or emotional connection. A poor communication fit may perpetuate the insecurities and impulse and affective defects that result in BPD. Developmental Roots, the Nurture Aspects Developmental theories on the causes of BPD focus on the delicate interactions between child and caregivers, especially during the first few years of life. The ages between 18 and 30 months, when the child begins to struggle to gain autonomy, are particularly crucial. Some parents actively resist the child's progression towards separation and insist on a controlled, exclusive, often suffocating symbiosis. At the other extreme, other parents offer only erratic parenting or are absent during much of the child raising period and so fail to provide sufficient attention to and validation for the child's feelings and experiences. Either extreme of parental behavior, behavioral over control, and slash or emotional under involvement can result in the child's failure to develop a positive stable sense of self and may lead to a constant intense need for attachment and chronic fears of abandonment.
In many cases, the broken parent-child relationship takes the more severe form of early parental loss or prolonged traumatic separation, or both. As with Dixie, many borderline children have an absent or psychologically disturbed father. Primary mother figures, who may sometimes be the father, tend to be erratic and depressed and have significant psychopathology themselves, often BPD. The borderline family background is frequently marked by incest, violence, and or alcoholism. Many cases show an ongoing hostile or combative relationship between mother and pre-borderline child. Object Relations, Theory, and Separation Individuation in Infancy and Childhood Object Relations Theory, a model of infant development, emphasizes the significance of the child's interactions with his environment as opposed to internal psychic instincts and biological drives unconnected to sensations outside himself. According to this theory, the child's relationship with objects in his environment determine his later functioning. A major result is the child's failure to feel connected or attached. The primary object relations model for the early phases of infant development was created by Margaret Mahler and colleagues. They postulated that the infant's first one to two months of life were characterized by an obliviousness to everything except himself. During the next four or five months designated the symbiotic phase, he begins to recognize others in his universe not as separate beings, but as extensions of himself. In the following separation-individuation period, extending through ages two to three years, the child begins to separate and disengage from the primary caregiver and begins to establish a separate sense of self. Mahler and others consider the child's ability to navigate through this phase of development successfully to be crucial for later mental health. During the entire separation individuation period, the developing child begins to sketch out boundaries between self and others, a task complicated by two central conflicts, the desire for autonomy versus closeness and dependency needs, and fear of engulfment versus fear of abandonment. A further complicating factor during this time is that the developing infant tends to perceive each individual in the environment as two separate personae. For example, when mother is comforting and sensitive, she is seen as all good. When she is unavailable or unable to comfort and soothe, she is perceived as a separate, all bad mother. When she leaves his sight, the infant perceives her as annihilated, gone forever, and cries for her return to relieve the despair and panic. As the child develops, this normal splitting is replaced by a healthier integration of mother's good and bad traits, and separation anxiety is replaced by the knowledge that mother exists even when she is not physically present and will in time return, a phenomenon commonly known as object constancy. Prevailing over these developmental milestones is the child's developing brain, which can sabotage normal adaptation. Mahler divides separation individuation into four overlapping subphases. Differentiation phase, five to eight months. In this phase of development, the infant becomes aware of a world separate from mother. Social smiling begins, a reaction to the environment, but directed mostly at mother. Near the end of this phase, the infant displays the opposite side of this same response, stranger anxiety, the recognition of unfamiliar people in the environment. If the relationship with mother is supportive and comforting, reactions to strangers are mainly characterized by curious wonder. If the relationship is unsupportive, anxiety is more prominent. 
The child begins to divide positive and negative emotions toward other individuals, relying on splitting to cope with these conflicting emotions. It remains unknown what effect the prolonged social distancing imposed by COVID-19 pandemic may have on infants later in life, where social interactions are limited, the development of differentiating reactions to mother figures and strangers is compromised. Practicing Phase 8-16 to 16 Months The practicing phase is marked by the infant's increasing ability to move away from mother, first by crawling, then by walking. These short separations are punctuated by frequent reunions to check in and refuel behavior that demonstrates the child's first ambivalence towards his developing autonomy. Reproachment phase, 16 to 25 months. In the reproachment phase, the child's expanding world sparks the recognition that he possesses an identity separate from those around him. Reunions with mother and the need for her approval shape the deepening realization that she and others are separate people. It is in the reproachment phase, however, that both child and mother confront conflicts that will determine future vulnerability to the borderline syndrome. The parent's role during this time is to encourage the child's experiments with individuation, yet simultaneously provide a constant, supportive, refueling reservoir. The normal two-year-old not only develops a strong bond with parents, but also learns to separate temporarily from them with sadness rather than with rage or tantrum. The so-called terrible twos represent some of the conflict during this transition. When reunited with the parent, the child is likely to feel happy as well as angry over the separation. The nurturing mother empathizes with the child and accepts the anger without retaliation. After many separations and reunions, the child develops an enduring sense of self, love, and trust for parents, and a healthy ambivalence toward others. In theory, the mother of a pre-borderline child, however, tends to respond to her child in a different way either by pushing her child away prematurely and discouraging reunion, or by insisting on a clinging symbiosis. In either case, the child becomes burdened by intense fears of abandonment and or engulfment that are mirrored back to him by the mother's own fears. As a result, the child never grows into an emotionally separate human being. Later in life, the borderline adult's inability to achieve intimacy in personal relationships reflects this infant stage. When an adult with BPD confronts closeness, she may resurrect from childhood either the devastating feelings of abandonment that always followed her futile attempts at intimacy, or the feeling of suffocation from mother's constant smothering. Defying such controls risks losing mother's love. Satisfying her attempts at intimacy risks losing oneself. This fear of engulfment is well illustrated by T.E. Lawrence, who at age 38 writes about his fear of closeness to his overbearing mother. I have a terror of her knowing anything about my feelings, or convictions, or way of life. If she knew, they would be damaged, violated, no longer mine. Object Constancy Phase, 25-36 to 36 months By the end of the second year of life, assuming the previous levels of development have progressed satisfactorily, the child enters the Object Constancy Phase, wherein the child recognizes that the absence of mother does not automatically mean her annihilation. The child learns to tolerate ambivalence and frustration. The temporary nature of mother's anger is recognized. The child also begins to understand that his own rage will not destroy his mother. He begins to appreciate the concept of unconditional love and acceptance, and develops the capacity to share and to empathize. The child becomes more responsive to father and others in the environment.
self-image becomes more positive, despite the self-critical aspects of an emerging conscience. Aiding the child in all these tasks are transitional objects, the familiar comforts that represent the mother and are carried everywhere by the child to help ease separations. The object's form, smell, and texture are physical representations of the comforting mother. Transitional objects are one of the first compromises made by the developing child in negotiating the conflict between the need to establish autonomy and the need for dependency. This conflict of opposites is the first dialect that a child learns to negotiate. Such dialectical oppositions are confronted in Dialectical Behavior Therapy DBT, one of the treatment approaches to BPD discussed in more detail in Chapter 8. Eventually in normal development, the transitional object is abandoned when the child is able to internalize a permanent image of a soothing, protective mother figure. Developmental theories propose that the individual with BPD is never able to progress to this object constancy stage. Instead, she is fixated at an earlier developmental phase in which splitting and other defense mechanisms remain prominent. Because they are locked into a continual struggle to achieve object constancy, trust, and a separate identity, Borderline adults continue to rely on transitional objects for soothing. One woman, for example, always carried in her purse a newspaper article that contained quotes from her psychiatrist. When she was under stress, she would pull out the article, calling it her security blanket. Seeing her doctor's name in print reinforced his existence and his continued interest and concern for her. Princess Diana also took comfort in transitional objects, keeping a menagerie of stuffed animals, my family, she called them, at the foot of her bed. As her lover James Hewitt observed, they lay in a line about thirty cuddly animals, animals that had been with her in her childhood, which she had tucked up in her bed at Park House, and which had comforted her and represented a certain security. When she went on trips, Diana took a favorite teddy bear with her. Hospitalized borderline patients similarly often bring teddy bears or other bedtime objects from home to comfort them while in treatment. Ritualized superstitious acts, when carried out to the extreme, may represent borderline utilization of transitional objects. The ball player who wears the same socks or refuses to shave while in the midst of a hitting streak, for example, may simply be prone to the superstitions that prevail in sports. Only when such behaviors are repeated compulsively and inflexibly and interfere with routine functioning does the person cross the border into the borderline syndrome. Childhood Conflicts the child's evolving sense of object constancy is consistently challenged as he progresses through developmental milestones. The toddler, entranced by fairy tales filled with all good and all bad characters, encounters numerous situations in which he uses splitting as a primary coping strategy. Snow White, for example, can be conceptualized only as all good and the evil queen as all bad. The fairy tale does not elicit sympathy for a queen who was perhaps the product of a chaotic upbringing or allow criticism of the heroine's cohabitation with the seven short guys. Though now trusting in mother's permanent presence, the growing child must still contend with the fear of losing her love. The four-year-old who is scolded for being bad may still feel threatened with the withdrawal of his mother's love. He may not yet conceive of the possibility that his mother may be expressing her own frustrations quite apart from his own behavior, nor has he learned that his mother can be angry and yet love him just as much at the same time. Eventually, children are confronted with the separation anxiety of starting school. School phobia is neither a real phobia nor related exclusively to school itself. 
but instead represents the subtle interplay between the child's anxiety and the reactions of parents who may reinforce the child's clinging with their own ambivalence about the separation. Adolescent Conflicts Separation individuation issues are repeated during adolescence, when questions of identity and closeness to others once again become vital concerns. During both the rapprochement phase of infancy and adolescence, the child's primary mode of relating is less acting than reacting to others, especially parents. While the two-year-old tries to elicit approval and admiration from parents by molding his identity to emulate caregivers, the adolescent tries to imitate peers or adopts behaviors that are consciously different, even opposite, from those of the parents. In both stages, the child's behavior is based less on independently determined internal needs than on reacting to the significant people in the immediate environment. Behavior then becomes a quest to discover identity rather than to reinforce an established one. An insecure teenager may ruminate endlessly about her boyfriend in a he-loves-me-he-loves-me-not fashion. Failure to integrate these positive and negative emotions and to establish a firm, consistent perception of others leads to continued splitting as a defense mechanism. The borderline adolescent's failure to maintain object constancy results in later problems with sustaining consistent, trusting relationships, establishing a core sense of identity, and tolerating anxiety and frustration. Often entire families adopt a borderline system of interaction with the family members' undifferentiated identities alternately merging with and separating from one another. Melanie, the adolescent daughter in one such family, closely identified with her chronically depressed mother, who felt abandoned by her philandering husband. With her husband often away from home and her other children much younger, the mother latched on to her teenage daughter, relating intimate details of the unhappy marriage and invading the teenager's privacy with intrusive questions about her friends and activities. Melanie's feelings of responsibility for her mother's happiness interfered to the point where she could not attend to her own needs. She even selected a college nearby so she could continue to live at home. Eventually, Melanie developed anorexia nervosa, which became her primary mechanism for feeling in control, independent, and comforted. Similarly, Melanie's mother felt responsible and guilty for her daughter's illness. The mother sought relief in extravagant spending sprees and then covered the bills by stealing money from her daughter's bank account. Mother, father, and daughter were trapped in a dysfunctional family swamp, which they were unwilling to confront and from which they were unable to escape. In such cases, others involved with the borderline individual often suffer and struggle in the stressful home environment. Treatment of the identified borderline patient may require treatment of the entire family. Family therapy interventions may be focused on education about BPD and skills training for families and others who care deeply. There are three primary family scenarios that can be addressed in helping the BPD person and loved ones. Number one, caring for the BPD person and family of origin. Number two, caring for the BPD person and his or her new adult family. Number three, helping the BPD person be an effective parent. In some cases, an individual therapy of the borderline patient is best directed toward distancing or separating from an unremittingly pathological family system. Traumas. Major traumas, parental loss, neglect, rejection, physical or sexual abuse during the early years of development can increase the probability of BPD in adolescence and adulthood. Indeed, case histories of borderline patients are typically desolate battlefields scarred by broken homes, 
chronic abuse, and emotional deprivation. Norman Mailer described the effect of an absent parent on Marilyn Monroe, who never knew her father. Though his absence would contribute to her emotional instability in later life, it would also ironically be one of the motivating forces in her career. Great actors usually discover they have a talent by first searching in desperation for an identity. It is no ordinary identity that will suit them, and no ordinary desperation can drive them. The force that propels a great actor in his youth is insane ambition. Illegitimacy and insanity are the godparents of the great actor. A child who is missing either parent is a study in the search for identity and quickly becomes a candidate for the actor, since the most creative way to discover a new impossible identity is through the close fit of a role. Similarly, Princess Diana, rejected by her mother and reared by a cold, withdrawn father, exhibited similar characteristics. I always used to think that Diana would make a very good actress because she would play out any role she chose, said her former nanny, Mary Clark. Raised in an orphanage during many years of her childhood, Marilyn had to learn to survive with a minimum of love and attention. It was her self-image that suffered the most and led to her manipulative behavior with lovers later in life. For Diana, her deep feelings of unworthiness hindered her relationships with men. I'd always kept boyfriends away, thought they were all trouble, and I couldn't handle it emotionally. I was very screwed up, I thought. Not all children who are traumatized or abused become borderline adults, of course. Nor do all borderline adults have a history of trauma or abuse. Further, most studies on the effects of childhood trauma are based on interferences from adult reports and not on longitudinal studies that follow young children through to adulthood. Finally, other studies have demonstrated less extreme forms of abuse in the histories of borderline patients, particularly neglect and a rigid, tight marital bond that excludes adequate protection and support for the child. Nevertheless, the large amount of anecdotal and statistical evidence demonstrates a link between various forms of abuse, neglect, and BPD. The nature-nurture question is, of course, a long-standing, controversial one that applies to many aspects of human behavior. Is one afflicted with BPD because of a biological destiny inherited from one's parents or because of the way parents handled or mishandled one's upbringing? Do the biochemical and neurological signs of the disorder cause the illness, or are they caused by the illness? Why do some people develop BPD in spite of an apparently healthy upbringing? Why do others burdened with a background filled with trauma and abuse not develop it? These chicken or egg dilemmas can lead to false assumptions. For example, one might conclude, based on developmental theories, that the causal direction is strictly downward. That is, an aloof, detached mother would produce an insecure, borderline child. But the relationship might be more complex, more interactive than that. A colicky, unresponsive, unattractive infant may generate disappointment and detachment in the mother. Regardless of which comes first, both continue to interact and perpetuate interpersonal patterns, which may endure over many years and extend to other relationships. The mitigating effects of other factors, a supportive father, an accepting family and friends, superior education, physical and mental abilities, will help determine the ultimate emotional health of the individual. Though no evidence supports a specific BPD gene, humans may inherit chromosomal vulnerabilities that are later expressed as a particular illness, depending on a variety of contributing factors. Childhood frustrations and trauma, specific stress events in life, 
healthy nutrition, exposure to environmental changes or toxins, access to health care, and so on. Just as some have postulated that heritable biological defects in the body's metabolism of alcohol may be associated with an individual's propensity to develop alcoholism, so there may exist a genetic predisposition for BPD involving a biological weakness in stabilizing mood and impulses. As many persons with BPD learn that they must reject the either-or, black-or-white ways of thinking, researchers are beginning to appreciate that the most likely model for BPD recognizes multiple contributing factors, nature and nurture, working and interacting simultaneously. Borderline personality disorder is a complex tapestry, richly embroidered with innumerable intersecting threads. That's end of chapter three. This is into the book, and I hope you guys stay tuned for the next one.